Welcome to Pop Pantheon, the podcast where we completely overanalyze all of your favorite pop stars and then rank them in the official Pop Pantheon. This is your host, DJ Louis the Fourteenth. This is a very special episode of the podcast where we are going to be answering all of your incredible, smart, insightful, sometimes pretty funny questions that you guys have sent in over the last couple weeks about pop, about pop stars, about the Pantheon, about uh, how we make the podcast, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm really excited to get into that with everybody shortly. As always, please follow the podcast on social media at Pop Pantheon Pod. Follow me on social media at DJ L-O-U-I-E-X-I-V. So the way we're going to structure this episode is that I have recently brought on a podcast helper who wears many hats over the last six or so weeks. It's Russ Martin. He has been incredible. He's honestly like helped take this whole thing to a new level. And I'm so appreciative of him and all of his wisdom, insights, organization. He's really a man of many trades, a renaissance person. And I brought him on today on mic to help feed me some of these questions and maybe weigh in a couple of times about thoughts he has as a non-American pop fan, as a lot of these questions pertain to my American bias in certain instances, as we'll get to. But anyway, Russ is also a writer and an editor in his own right, and as I said, practitioner of many things. So Russ Martin, thanks for coming on the pod today. Louis, what an intro. Uh, Wow, thank you so much. (laughs) I'm slightly embarrassed, but incredibly happy to be on the podcast today, and I have had so much fun helping you out with this great podcast, and today we have so many wonderful insights clever questions coming from the listeners. Remember, follow us on Instagram at Pop Pantheon Pod to catch callouts for future mailbag episodes. And I've got to say, Louis, my favorite questions are the ones that just read you a little bit. <laughs> I'm so glad those are your favorites because it's not like I have a fragile ego or anything. Uh, I've organized <laughs> this. So we're going to start with some, some big questions and we're going to move into some rapid fire. We've got ones about specific artists, about the pandemic, Pantheon itself, all sorts of stuff. Are you ready for questions, Louis? Russ, I was born ready for questions. <laughs> all right, let's start <laughs> off then with a topical one. Here is a question from Michael Modesto Gale. Michael writes, hi, hi, what do you think about the levitating plagiarism scandal? Would love to hear your thoughts on copyright infringement in music more generally. For example, the blurred lines, sorry, between a reference and and infringement, how fear of litigation may hinder creativity, etc., as well as other recent controversies. See, for example, Half of Sour. Love the pod so much, mm-hmm. Michael. I love this question, and it's something that I actually think quite a bit about. I guess maybe to rewind a second, there was a big turning point in this whole question about crediting other artists and what counts as an interpolation, what counts as a sample, etc., which was this lawsuit that the Marvin Gaye estate filed against Blurred Lines that Michael references in his question. And in that particular case, they were claiming that Blurred Lines like interpolated Marvin Gaye's classic disco hit, Got to Give It Up Part One. And I mean, I think they did claim in that case. And again, like, I'm, I, don't fact check me on this, but I think they did claim that there was some sort of melodic lift. But Overall, what they were claiming was that it was a a vibe, kind of like that they were stealing like the essence of the song somehow. And the Marvin Gaye estate won that case. And that's kind of set off a lot of this new wave of 
artists kind of like claiming that newer songs are like lifting their ideas like this happened with as michael mentioned a bunch of songs on olivia rodrigo's album like in cruel summer taylor screams on the bridge that Olivia does similarly. It's not the same thing. She doesn't say the same thing. She doesn't do it in exactly the same melody or anything, but just like the act of her screaming on the bridge like led her to just preemptively credit Taylor on this song. So again, these are not about like people like lifting melodies, which has always been something that you have to credit and pay for other artists for lifting sections of a song into your own song. Like that's always been something that's historically been like the nature of that is that you pay for and credit those as samples or interpolations. This is a new thing where it's like you're lifting like the general vibe of the song. Anyway, so back to the Marvin Gaye thing. Marvin Gaye's estate won that case. And since then, that's sort of set off like a whole new wave of these things happening. My opinion on it is that it's fucking bullshit. And I think it's especially true when it comes to pop music, which is like literally baked into the cake is like familiarity. Like the whole idea of pop is that it's presenting something to you that is warm and fuzzy and that you know somehow. Obviously, pop can be challenging and can bring something new. And I think maybe the combo of the new and the warm and fuzzy is like kind of the sweet spot for a pop song but music is constantly inspired by other music music is constantly riffing on other forms of music that have come before it that's been true for all of history and like pop music is fun because it's referential and like I think that it's really a problem that artists are like living in fear of doing something either intentionally or not that's like building on a feeling or an idea or a vibe of another genre of an older song like we want pop artists to be able to do that and again this isn't me saying that like if you lift a melody or you lift a sample from a song you should pay for that like that's something that you didn't write and so you should credit the writers and makers of that thing but if you're just like riffing on the vibe of like what Marvin Gaye's take on disco was or you're just riffing on some of Taylor Swift's like vocal recording innovations that she's brought to some of her albums you should be allowed to do that like that's what pop is about in the levitating case in particular like that's a little bit more confusing because that track did sound like a lot of like the melody of levitating so if that producer indeed did just like hear that song and like really just like took it that's different to me overall but the other thing I would say about that just in conclusion on this topic is that there's not that many notes in music this is a really sticky territory like it's not inconceivable by any measure that an artist would come up with a similar melody without ever having known that they did that so again I don't know what the details of this particular lift are and I think is it going to fall more into like the blurred lines camp or did they actually like steal this melody and steal this concept like those are two different things to me but I I think overall what the question is asking is like kind of about this new trend that Olivia Rodrigo has personified by crediting Taylor Swift like numerous times on her album just for stealing essentially stylistic ideas or innovations in how to record vocals or punctuations on ad-libs or whatever it is like 
Taylor Swift doesn't own screaming on a bridge. That's not like now her thing. And every time someone screams on a bridge, they've got to pay her. So that's my take on that. I will say that if Taylor Swift finds a way, she will. She will. Also, I mean, this is like not a fair thing to say because whatever, but like Taylor Swift doesn't need more money. Correct. Uh, However, uh, (laughs) the white reggae band that is making this claim against Dua might. Yes, I agree. And as I said, like, if they really did steal his song, which like is plausible, I mean, shit like that does happen. You know, you could imagine that if an unscrupulous producer could be like sifting through like little known music and be like, yeah, I'm just going to fucking take this. Like, that's not cool, obviously. So I think the facts of that particular case have yet to be fully revealed to us. So it sort of depends what camp that falls into. All right, excellent. There you go. Our next question comes from Jen Galati. And before I read the question, I want to compliment Jen on their fantastic Instagram bio, which is just, I stand pop queens and I can't stand men. (laughs) Who can relate? Who can relate? That is honestly same. Yeah, same. same. That is a pop pantheon <laughs> listener. If we have ever found a bio for one, I think that represents mm-hmm. so many of us. Jen writes, which pop stars have had the best genuine comeback eras? Uh, there's a few that pop into my head. The first, I think, like obvious answer to this question is Mariah Carey. I think we've talked so many times on this podcast about how fickle and ageist pop music is. I don't know how many episodes I have to like repeat this stance, but essentially like you get 10 years into your pop career and basically nobody cares about you anymore unless you like do something radical to like bring people back into the fold. Most pop stars can't do that. And it really does kind of separate the top tier artists from the bottom tier. I think if there's one criteria in the Pantheon that really separates the kind of tier one, tier twos from like everybody else. It's that they figure out some sort of way to break that rule, which is very hard to do. And as I mentioned on the episode, part two episode of Diana Ross with Chris Malamphy last week is increasingly hard to do. I think it's gotten more difficult in the streaming era and in the social media era. I think people get sick of people faster. We're ready to wash pop stars quicker. They are more in our face when they're big. They're everywhere. The oversaturation factor is like easier to achieve in the modern era. And I think that we're more quick to just kind of be like, all right, like we've had enough of this. I think like Lady Gaga is a pretty good example of this. I mean, obviously she's found a way to stay relevant in her own way, but I think there was a period like in the mid 2000s where it was like she burned so fast and so bright and it was so over the top and so oversaturated that by like 2013, four years into her career or five years into her career, people were like enough like we can't take it anymore so I think this has all gotten more challenging and I'll be interested to see what artists like Rihanna for instance who is kind of on this precipice does to figure out how to do this so Mariah comes to mind to me because she really defied gravity in the sense that like she had this massive run of success in the 90s like one of the most storied pop music runs in history and then had this you know notorious quote-unquote meltdown which like I think we've culturally reassessed over time and whatever and then proceeded to have a series of flop albums so 2001's Glitter notorious flop although incredible 2002's Charm Bracelet which is also quite good in retrospect but was complete one of her least well-performing albums to that point 
And at that phase in Mariah's career, I mean, I think many of us who lived through it can remember feeling like it was fully and truly over. I mean, it really did not seem like she was going to be able to bring herself back from the brink. And in 2005, she released this album, The Emancipation of Mimi, which had four huge songs on it, including the biggest song of her career, We Belong Together. And I still marvel at that. I think that comeback comes down to just pure song quality. Like, We Belong Together is just like an American standard that was undeniable. And I think Mariah's abilities as a songwriter and producer are part of what allowed that to happen. Like she's actually one of the greatest songwriters of all time. So she was able to just write herself like maybe one of the best songs of her career and the biggest hit of her career. So to me, that always stands out as like, wow, 15 years into her career, five years into like a pretty notorious flop era, she was able to bring herself back from the dead and like then was able off the back of that have you know, another five, six years of hits. So to me, that's one that really jumps out at me. I mean, I think you could also throw Madonna into this mix a little bit, although it's not quite the same thing. Like Madonna never flopped on the level that Mariah did, but Madonna went from 1989's Like a Prayer, which was kind of like her magnum opus, into Erotica in 1992, which was super controversial. And the sex book she put out, this whole, the whole era of Erotica was extremely controversial and sold, I think, maybe like a fifth or a sixth of what Like a Prayer did. And has since become a cult classic, but I think in modern idioms that we would call that a flop. And Bedtime Stories, the follow-up in 94, was, like, a modest success. Like, she wasn't flopping like Mariah was. Like, she was still getting top 10 hits and stuff. But coming off of what her 80s era was like, these records seemed relatively small. And I think you could have once again imagined that, like, her career was coming to a close, at least as a commercial force. And then, obviously, Ray of Light and the era that followed that regenerated a whole new series of hits and hit albums from her and then once again when American Life came out in the early 2000s that was another huge bust for her and then she was able to sort of bring it back a third time with Confessions on a dance floor in 2005 so I would throw those two into the mix as like two of the most interesting comebacks and I mean I mean I hesitate to say this but I actually would maybe throw Beyonce into this mix as well I think Beyonce has done a great magic trick in her career of masking the fact that she's like not really ever been like a huge singles artist and that's really unique in a pop star's career but prior to her self-titled album in 2013, 4 was a pretty big commercial disappointment, I think. I mean, obviously 4 is now a cult classic as well. I think there was a lot of talk in that time period about Beyonce being in the waning days of her commercial power, and then obviously her self-titled album sort of relaunched her once again into the stratosphere. So those are three uh, huge stars that kind of come to mind in that respect. Uh, I'm surprised that you didn't mention the one that comes top of mind to me, which is Cher. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, I guess Cher's come back numerous times. Like, Cher's kind of like the comeback queen, I guess. Yeah, Cher's kind of the comeback queen, but I think in specific, 1999, believe, that was a moment. When we talk about ageism and pop, that everyone thought that Cher was done. And Cher came back and just ruled the top of the pop charts once again. I agree. And that's her biggest hit. I, I guess I guess my thing about the share thing is that that felt like a fluke in some senses because like she wasn't really able to capitalize. Like it wasn't like that led to Cher having another sort of like huge wave of hit songs. I mean, yes, there was like some minor hits that came after Believe, but Believe was just like a weird fluke. But so are so many of Cher's hits. Cher's career is like filled with long fallow periods followed by like a weird thing where she connects and then she kind of doesn't and then she does. That's the 
the share thing. So I guess that's why it didn't come to mind. But I do think that's a good point. I mean, share having her biggest hit at 52 or whatever is truly one of the most like remarkable pop feats of all time. No question about it. Well, I love that your answer for that question started with Mariah Carey, because the next question comes from the biggest Mariah Carey fan in my life, my friend Ryan, who texted and said, I'm curious to know, Louie, what's your strategy or process for selecting the artists that you decide to profile on the podcast? Well, Russ, I think this is a question that you could probably answer as well as I can. I think it's like a giant quagmire, frankly. It's like a constant multi-pronged Venn diagram from hell. And we are work. One of the things Russ and I are constantly working on is like how to streamline this process. But like, Basically, my vision, my goal, my dream for this is that every episode you're getting something different. I have not always been successful in doing this, especially in the first you know year of this where I was doing it completely by myself. But I would love it so that like you're getting you know a main pop girly of now, followed by like a one hit wonder from the '80s, followed by maybe a rap adjacent artist from the '90s, followed by a guy and then a girl and then like a group. But you know, I really try as hard as I possibly can to like make sure that we're providing like a diversity of artists and I only want this podcast to become more diverse like I was actually talking to someone the other day about how like I really would love to like start making sure we're throwing in like one hit wonders and people that are truly forgotten so that's the balancing act of how we try to think about the artists we want to feature and then there's the x factor which is who can come on the podcast and talk about these people obviously I think one of the things people love about the podcast and one of the things I love about it is the incredible people that come on and do this. These episodes are only as good as who comes on and talks about the artist. So that is obviously like the A number one most important thing. And like, I will sacrifice the former for the latter. Good episodes take precedence. Making sure that all the episodes are of a certain quality is the number one priority. So it's kind of this constant quagmire of making sure that we're not hitting the same note over and over and over again. And that's something that I'm really striving for. I want to hit different eras. I want to talk about things from different angles. I don't like when episode after episode is kind of covering the same ground, the same ideas, the same periods. So those are kind of, I'd say, like the two main deciding factors is who do we want on the podcast? What episodes do we foresee? How do we like place those two things together? And we kind of just kind of roll with it in that way. Anything I'm missing on that, Russ? No, I think that's pretty much it. I would say in this, the month of March, by the end of the month, we are going to choose a fan-selected episode to commit to. So if you are listening to this and thinking, I would really love an episode on a specific pop star, I want you to drop a review on Apple Podcast and let us know in the review the name. I'm going to be going through and tabulating those, and we're going to commit to doing whoever it is. So Tune in Good call, Russ. And Good promo. Review. <laughs> Good promo, Russ. Don't don't miss the promo. Yeah, and I, I guess so the only thing I would say piggybacking off of that is I really do listen to what people say. Like people DM me all the time, people leave reviews, people are constantly like reaching out and being like, please do this, please do that. I know every single listener of the podcast is waiting for the Taylor episode. I'm well aware of that. And uh, we do really listen to what fans are requesting so keep sending them in I love hearing what you guys want to hear and if you're waiting for one and it's one of the big ones know that you are not getting it because it takes so much time and work and we want to do your fave justice exactly yes we have big plans for those Taylor episodes and I'll just say that for now (laughs) all right I've got a philosophical question for you Louie it comes from Mm -hmm. TMD Rands and they write Mm -hmm. a question that just occurred to me while listening to a topic you touch on a lot and something I'd love to hear you discuss in more detail at some stage. 
You mentioned the gradual cultural shift towards prioritizing authenticity above all else. What do you think were the turning points slash milestones or watershed moments in this trend? Pop is often a push and pull between poles, like in numerous different ways. Like it's like a pendulum or something that like swings back and forth, like on numerous different fronts. In terms of authenticity, I mean, this is something we've gone in and out of numerous times. I think we touched on this actually also a little bit in the Diana Ross episode. We were talking about how Diana was struggling to find her place in the early 70s because that was another era where I think there was like a mega focus on quote unquote authenticity. Like if you think about the rise of singer-songwriters like Carole King and Joni Mitchell, and you think about even like as Chris was bringing up R&B artists that were sort of idiosyncratic, soulful leaders of R&B movements like Shaka Khan or Roberta Flack. That was an era where sort of like the glossy untouchability of a Diana Ross was a little bit out of fashion. And then I think you could almost think about the disco era as a reaction to that, where once again, glamour and untouchability and not being able to relate to your pop stars, but to treat them as queens and untouchable beings like kind of came back into fashion. So these things can cycle through. I think in the most contemporary sense that I'm describing, I think the number one inflection point in the last 10 years was Lord, who I think sort of shifted, and we talk about this on the Lord episode a little bit, the era preceding Lord, the kind of EDM pop boom, which was another era of hyper-visual, broad-based dance music where the stars felt like they were outsized beings. And it's tricky in some ways because like someone like Lady Gaga was also so clearly trying also to be like, I'm your friend and like, I love gays and like whatever. But like at least the presentation and the music all felt very God-sized and these culty like worshipped deity beings that were Gaga and Katie and Nicki Minaj and, you know, all of the big stars of that movement. Rihanna even, you know, and Beyonce. I mean, Beyonce being the primo, I think, example of a pop star that at least for the first 12, 15 years, and I'd argue to this day, remains a very old-fashioned type of pop star where she's not there for you to relate to. You never feel like Beyonce is one of us. Like, she's there to be worshipped, you know, as like a extraterrestrial being or something. And I think Lord was a major shifting point, literally making music that was reacting against that in her music and also just being just a very low key person and pop star. Like she is the antithesis of a Lady Gaga to the point now where it's almost like irritating in its own right. She's like, I'm not interested in being a godlike figure in your life. I'm just want to be a normal person who lives at the beach, like whatever. But I think she shifted the sound to be something more bedroomy and intimate, which has like really panned out over the last seven, eight years. And I think she's also created a version of pop stardom that's just become increasingly about relatability and less about virtuosity, I guess is like the main thing that I would put in here. I think we are in an era at the moment, Dua Lipa aside, most pop stars are here for us to feel like they could be our friends and that we relate to them and they're speaking directly about our experiences as quote unquote normies. That's what Olivia is good at. In a way, that's what Taylor is really good at, even though Taylor is kind of untouchable. I always think of her as like the basic bitch savant like (laughs) she is absolutely masterful at conveying basic experiences in like a poetic way so the answer of your question is lord to me feels like a huge turning point in the majority of pop stars in the latter part of the 2010s becoming people that we wanted to feel like we related to and had access to and not people that seemed like untouchable goddesses (laughs) gods and goddesses uh yeah beyonce and i have nothing in common and frankly that's okay uh, <laughs> all right, I have. I missed that. I like a good cyborg 
pop star. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's plenty of room for both. I think we may be tiring a bit of the relatable authenticity pop star wave. I hope, actually. Yeah, well, if we're we're clocking it in starting somewhere around Lord, we're also coming up on 10 years. So it's probably yes. time for a shift. Yeah, and I think Dua Lipa is someone that doesn't fit this paradigm. Like, she's looks like a model. She reminds me more of pop stars of in the Britney-esque mold where it's like, are you a human too? Like, I like that. You know, I'm into that. I think Ariana is another person that's like an interesting interloper on both sides of this debate. She's obviously like way more talented than any of us will ever be, but also has done a good job job of playing into the modern pop star trope of making music that's really personal and idiosyncratic and whatever. So anyway, that's my long-winded answer. All right. Well, speaking of Dua Lipa, we actually have another question about British pop girlies who uh, Mm. come from England. This one comes from Gus Wolf, and Gus writes, hi, huge fan of the pod. Wasn't going to ask a question, but it kind of popped into my head, coming back home tipsy from the club. Okay, so as an (laughs) American... All of my greatest ideas come to me at that moment. Uh, Gus says, as an American, I've always admired from afar how much the British public seemingly enjoyed pop better. More capital P pop seems to succeed there, and there seems to be much more relevance for the campier and gayer vibes than in the U.S. Plus, the charts always seemed more interestingly volatile, while we had a steady number one over here in the States. In particular, Girls Aloud and Sophie Ellis Bexter were huge gateway acts that made me realize that pop is for me, and they would never succeed in the U.S. Not to mention Mm. the Kylie of it all, which y'all did smartly give nods to on the Minogue episode. So my question is, I guess, do you have that viewpoint as well, or am I kind of exoticizing it? Grass is greener, etc. And do you think if there was a UK-centric counterpoint of this pod, would the Pantheon tiers look different at all, given the structure of the country's pop landscape? So curious about your thoughts, but this is also buzzed rambling, so I will not be offended if you did not include this. LOL, heart emoji, heart emoji, heart emoji, Gus. All right, let me, let me try to take, there was a bunch of things in here, so I'm going to try to remember them. If I forget aspects of his question, you might have to remind me. First answer, just of, to your last question, is yes, I think maybe it would be slightly structured differently, but I don't think I'd be the person to make that structure, so that would be my first answer to that question. You are not exoticizing it. I believe you are correct that pop music is more widely embraced in not just the UK, but I think in all non-American contexts or maybe all non-North American contexts. I'm not sure, but maybe Russ, you can weigh in on this too as the resident Canadian. I would say that's probably a a European thing, you know, and dance music in Europe has a different situation and culture than it does in North America. Yeah. My answer to this question actually relates back to something John Seabrook said on the Max Martin episode. I'm so proud that like every answer to these questions I can like point back to a main episode of the show that you could go listen to and get more on this. But I don't know exactly why this is, but one theory that has been posited in John Seabrook's book, The Song Machine, is that at least in many European countries, and I think this would be true of the UK, is that because of their longer history, this is maybe a stretch, but I think it's an interesting theory, that because of their longer history, there's more of an ingrained caste system in those countries. So your class is more sort of like set in stone somehow than it is in America. So there's not this constant scrambling for social capital through your taste. So like, for instance, I guess the counterpoint to this would be that like in America, because there's no caste system, our taste 
and having good taste is our caste system. We find cultural capital in having the best taste or like liking the coolest thing and whatever that has come to mean. Whereas like that's less of a pressing concern in a society where your caste is not determined by your taste. So there's more of an openness to camp and to pop and to like frivolity and not this need from deep inside in order to like find your place in the world to have quote unquote highbrow taste. So I've always been taken with that as a theory. I mean, who the fuck knows? That's like, that's above my pay grade. But that's like one answer that I think could possibly be the reason why. I also think that America is a, you know, super multi-ethnic society in a way that a lot of other European countries aren't. I mean, the UK is on a bigger level than others, but America is a extremely diverse country. And one of the main forces in America's popular music is the push and pull between traditional pop music and hip hop and R&B. And those are two American art forms that are very powerful forces on charts in our popular music. And I think there's a way to frame the history of American popular music as a constant push and pull between traditional pop and R&B and hip hop. So obviously other countries have adopted those genres too, but I think they are much more powerful commercial forces, or at least historically up until recently have been more powerful commercial forces in America than they are in other countries. So there's less of this two oppositional forces that sometimes come together and sometimes pull apart, but constantly are supplanting each other as the dominant pop music of the moment. So that's one reason I think maybe American charts are more volatile when it comes to pop music music, sometimes embracing pure pop wholeheartedly, sometimes rejecting it. And I hope that answers your question in some form. I think that is great. And for all future mailbags, I encourage all listeners to send us stuff when you were coming home from the club. Uh, we, (laughs) We absolutely love it. That reminds me, Russ, when I was coming home from the club myself the other night, I want to make sure that we do an episode on the Scissor Sisters. Speaking oh. of artists that are big in all other countries, but not America. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Get the Jake Shears up in here. Uh, mm-hmm. All right. Louis, I've got a question for you about one of the most discussed concepts from pop music criticism, the imperial phase. This has been discussed mm. on the podcast before, of course. But before I read this question, can you give the listeners just a quick reminder of what an imperial phase is? Yes. An imperial phase, as it's come to be understood, is a moment in a pop star's career that not all pop stars have them. Really, only certain ones do, where they become so incredibly prevalent in culture and they've sort of eaten the pop cultural conversation to the extent that anything that they do becomes popular just by dint of how huge they are. So it's like regardless of quality. For most pop stars in most of their careers, even ones that do have imperial phases at certain times, they're living hit to hit. They got to prove themselves over and over again. The songs have got to be good in order to connect. That's the operating principle for like 90% of pop stars during 90% of their careers. But there are these short-lived periods for some of them where they get so incredibly massive in culture that literally anything they do, regardless of how good or bad it is, is huge just because they're so huge. And it's usually very short-lived. It usually lasts two to three years. I think Gaga had one, you know, in 08, 09, 10. Katie had one, like, kind of right after that as well. They happen periodically, but they're hard to achieve and they're very short-lived generally speaking 
Excellent. Thank you for that. Now, on to the question, mm-hmm. which comes from Adam Clark, who writes, do you mm-hmm. think Beyonce needs to release another album on the level of Lemonade or self-titled, or is her legacy so secured now after her imperial phase in the mid-2010s? I mean, define need. I mean, I don't think Beyonce needs to do anything. In terms of Beyonce's legacy, I think if we're talking about the pop stars that we could still quantify as contemporary, she's the one of the batch that I feel like her legacy is fully realized at this point. I don't think there's much more that Beyonce like needs to prove to anybody. She has been making relevant hit music of expanding depth and texture for 25 years. I think as I've brought up numerous times on the podcast, I believe she stands with the absolute greats of the genre. It's not debatable to me. So the answer is, I guess, no. I don't think Beyonce needs to do shit. I think Beyonce is really in a phase of her career, more so than any of the pop stars, as I said, that we still think of as the relevant girlies. Although I guess she's cuspy in that sense too, which is a topic for another day, is free as one could possibly be to do whatever idiosyncratic, strange thing she ever wanted to do. And in fact, would probably be served, and I think she knows this on some level, by like not attempting to swing for something that ambitious or huge. Again, I mean, if anybody could do it, it's her. Like, I mean, I I never want to count her out. She's always found her way to massive cultural relevance over and over again when she's seemed down and out in the past. Not that she seems, quote unquote, I mean, whatever. There's a lot of things to talk about here. But the short answer to the question is no. I don't think Beyonce needs to do anything. I think Beyonce's legacy, she could never release a hit song or album again and she would still be just as revered and canonized in pop to me. Tier one forever. Yeah. yeah. You know, that's the thing about tier one. I always say this is like, if you're in tier one, the sort of primary criteria to consider here is like nothing could affect your legacy. Like no amount of flopping, no amount of extra musical controversy, nothing could affect your position in the Pantheon. And I believe she has 100% achieved that. That is a great jumping off point for a few questions that listeners have submitted about the Pantheon itself and about the artists that Mm -hmm. you have ranked in it so far with your guests. I've got two Mm -hmm. general questions I want to pose to you about rankings. The first comes Mm -hmm. from Philip. I apologize, Philip. This is not the correct pronunciation, but I think Tizani, Philip Tizani writes, with hindsight, are there any rating decisions that you are now unsure of? And in the same vein, Jimbo Patrick Long writes, are rankings set in stone or will you revisit? The answer to the first question is not really, although I know we're going to get to this extremely controversial Kylie situation that everybody's very upset about. No, I don't. I think so far there's not really a ranking I've been upset about so far. I mean, I think the toughest ranking so far has been Rihanna. That was like a real debate. It was the one I was honestly the most on the fence about, but I feel like we came down on the right side of that at the end of the day. And no, the answer to your question is I'm perfect and everything I do is right. And I would not change a damn thing I've said or done on this podcast (laughs) over the last year. (laughs) The answer to the second question is yes, they are very malleable aside from tier one. I think every tier aside from tier one is fully malleable. I mean, these artists, many of them are still in their main parts of their music making careers. They're going to be doing stuff that either takes them higher in the Pantheon or makes them lower in the Pantheon. And we will will certainly be readdressing that. I want to find a way. I mean, I don't think we've gotten 
you know, we've only been around for a year, so I haven't quite figured out how exactly we're going to start like readdressing pop stars that we've talked about already, but we are going to do that. When Ariana Grande releases, you know, more music and we've had time to imbibe that and take that into account, I definitely want to like reopen the case on that. So we're going to figure out ways to do that on this podcast. And yes, they are very malleable. And then on the flip side of that, artists that aren't in the prime of their careers anymore, their cultural standing shifts, like somebody like a Justin Timberlake was someone Jordan and I had like a pretty difficult, confusing debate because Justin Timberlake was someone that felt like a very solid tier two artist 10 years ago, but now feels maybe not. So yes, the answer to this question is a hearty, hearty yes, aside from tier one. And as we talked about before, tier one is by definition set in stone. And I don't just mean that as a Pop Pantheon reference. Now, Louis, as you have alluded to, we got multiple questions about the Kylie Minogue episode. So just as a reminder, Mm -hmm. in that episode, you and Noah placed Kylie in the Niche Legends tier alongside Robin, Charlie XCX, and Carly Rae Jepsen. I've got this very passionate email from a Kylie fan named Sammy that I want to read to you. Are you ready? Mm. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Hi, Louie. As my... ready as I'll ever be. Uh, so Sammy writes, Hi, Louie. My name is Sammy. I originally popped onto the pod to listen to your episode on Nicki Minaj with Ira. I've jumped around enjoying Lady Gaga's episode as well as Madonna's. I'm an American. I identify as a lesbian. And I consider Kylie Minogue to be my queen. Honestly, she may even be my root, as her performance at 2000's Sydney Olympics changed the way I have sung ABBA's Dancing Queen and hearing it from (laughs) 2000 until rediscovering the performance about three years ago. Her voice carried me for 19 years. Sammy even provided you a link to the performance in question. Our girl Sammy is bringing the receipts. Anyway, she continues, (laughs) I need to understand her Pantheon placement better. I understand that we are thinking that her ranking depends on where we are geographically because she's mononymous worldwide aside from the U.S. Kylie doesn't belong in the niche legends tier because she does have worldwide success. She crosses out so many of the tier one criteria. Does she deserve a lower placement because of casual mainstream pop listeners ignorance? Where does your power (laughs) as the person constructing the pantheon begin and end? Do I need to write an essay on the gospel of Kylie? You just did so thank you uh (laughs) sammy signs off her email very professionally thank you for your time sammy sammy i love you um where does my power lie i am the be all and end all obviously who i invented this i'm obviously the, the only person that can decide i mean i don't know what you're asking me look i mean this is a complicated question because obviously i'm an american i grew up in america i am only as limited as my unfortunately American-centric view provides for me. I would like to insert here that I love Kylie. I'm obsessed with Kylie as you are. I think she is absolutely incredible. I believe she should be a sensation in America. I think it is sacrilege that we have not elevated her as a society into this upper echelon of pop stars. So I'm 100% with you on that. I think to correct the record here slightly, I think we placed her as a either a tier two or a tier one international pop star and only a niche legend in America, which like she is. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I like Kylie Minogue. If you walk up to Joe Schmo American on the street, if they know her, they think of her as a one hit wonder and they might not even know that that is her or know who she is. And like, 
that's just tea. Like, I don't know what to say. And so I think just for this podcast edification, like when there is a discrepancy between their placement here and their placement in the world, I do try to acknowledge that. We did that on the Celine episode. We did it on the Kylie episode. Like, I want to acknowledge my biases. I want to acknowledge the way that these things play out differently in different cultures. Like, that's really important to me. And I and if we're not doing a good enough job of that, I want to make sure that we are doing that. But at the end of the day, this is an American podcast. I am a limited American person. And like, that's just what it is, I guess. Is that a decent answer, Russ? That's a decent answer. I think that we are all agreeing that Kylie Minogue is an absolute queen, that Kylie should be mm. not only a global superstar, but an American superstar. And I would yes. add on that of her content, contemporaries and of pop stars over 50 that Kylie is making the most relevant music thinking <laughs> disco was a bop smash album every relevant, gay person or is she making she may be making the best well, music relevant to pop as a genre meaning that everyone who is supremely interested in pop enjoyed mm. discussed and picked apart disco in a way mm -hmm. that recent albums from Madonna, Janet Jackson, mm -hmm. anyone mm -hmm. who was mm -hmm. a superstar in previous eras were not mm -hmm. discussed by pop superfans. Kylie Minogue's disco is singular in the past five years of a pop star from another era who has made an album that people who are into pop discussed and enjoyed. Which only buttresses my assertion that she is a niche legend because that is what happens with niche legends. I think the fact that she is a cult hero is why people like to continue to stand her in this way. She still feels like a secret to people in America. And so she's treated as like, I've got to stand by this woman because she has been rejected by mainstream pop music. And that's... Carly, that's Robin, that's Charlie XCX. I do think she fits that mold. For better or worse, in America, that is like how American gay culture consumes Kylie Minogue. So, yes. And again, I fully recognize Kylie's 30-year, 35-year legacy of superstardom in every other country in this world. So, yes. All right. Kylie closes out our big, big questions. And now I've got mm -hmm. a few shorter, fun questions. And most okay. of them are about specific artists. Are you ready for these? Sure. Oh, my God. Yes. All right. Garrett Clayman writes, perhaps my favorite question in 2022 <laughs> is Lady Marmalade, Christina Aguilera's signature hit. No, obviously, Christina Aguilera's signature hit is your body. Next question. <laughs> Uh, got a question from Andrew about Dua Lipa. Andrew says, I'm a huge Dua Lipa fan. Just two days ago, I was in the front row at her show in Columbus. In my book, she's a distant second to Gaga when it comes to the pop girls. Question, is future nostalgia Dua Lipa's teenage dream? Phenomenal front-to-back albums with great B-sides from singers whose talents are confined to the studio. Hard acts to follow. At this point, I'm having a hard time seeing Dua not follow Katie's arc. Interested to see what you think about this. Love the show, clearly, Andrew. <laughs> um, I'd say, like, yes, with caveats. I think that it's impossible to have a teenage dream anymore. I just think... We're in an era as like, again, something we've touched on so many times where like monoculture doesn't exist in the same way it did in 2010. And for all of its hits, Future Nostalgia has had zero number ones and has had two top tens, I think, or maybe three. And Katie had 
what five number ones from Teenage Dream and a series of other top tens. And so I think the scale is at least by metric smaller, but I do agree that this has been a era defining pop album. I am utterly impressed with the way that she stuck with this record and worked it for so long. I mean, that's not something that happens very often anymore. That's a very old fashioned pop thing is to like put your album out and work six singles over two years. You know, that doesn't happen that much anymore. And I think that's really paid off for her. You know, the fact that Levitating became the biggest hit from the record, you know, 12, 14, 16 months after it came out speaks to the staying power of that album. And I definitely think it's her teenage dream in the sense that she has catapulted herself to another level of pop stardom. And she's definitely one of the focal points of the last two, three years of pop. And I think we're all going to be very curious to see what she does next. And frankly, I hope she doesn't follow Katy Perry's trajectory because I think Katy Perry's trajectory has some serious kinks in it. So... I'm hoping Dua can figure out ways to keep us as interested and intrigued and isn't repeating herself over and over again. And then when she does try to do something weird, it's better than Witness. All right, I'm all in on Dua 2. Moving from Dua over to Casey, we have a question from Alexa Torrens. Thoughts on Mm. why Starcrossed doesn't seem to have any real hits. And to be clear, the album in question here is Starcrossed, Casey Musgraves' fifth studio album and the follow-up to her critically adored 2018 star-making album, Golden Hour. I I kind of like a little bit reject the premise of this, just slightly quibble, 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 because Casey's never been, a at least on a pop sense, a hit maker. It's not like any of those Golden Hour tracks were like scaling the Hot 100. That was a cult phenomenon that then sort of blew up into a critical phenomenon when she won Album of the Year at the Grammys, etc., And so Casey's never been an artist that's been living off of top 10 singles. So I think that the premise is slightly flawed, although I will now say I understand what you mean, which I think the question might be, why does Starcross feel just less of an event, generally speaking? And I think the answer to that question is simple, which is that Starcross is not as good as Golden Hour was. Like, I just, I say that as a huge Golden Hour fan and a huge pre-Golden Hour Casey fan. I just think this record, and I've revisited it recently because I went to go see Casey's tour. She could keep half those songs to me. And I just don't think it's nearly as strong of a record. And I think the cultural impact has borne that out. And I think... Her attempt to kind of like pivot into more broad-based pop stardom with the film and stuff, I just think it all didn't really take. The film wasn't that good. Yeah, so I think that paired with like the quality of the music. You know, there's some songs I like on the record, but I think overall it just felt less like of a critical event Mm -hmm. than Golden Hour did. A quick follow-up Casey question. What did you think of the Grammys' decision not to consider the album to be a country album? Was that fair? I don't even know what to say about this shit anymore because it's like genre is so opaque and diffuse at this point that it's like, I don't know. I like, do I listen to Starcross and think like, this is a country album? Like, ish? There's definitely country signifiers, but I think Casey has like, obviously one of the great things she's done is found a way to break country molds and sort of blur the lines between indie pop and 
indie country. I don't know, like something like that. So I think whatever the artist wants to classify themselves as seems like that's what should be the criteria. Ultimately, who the fuck are the Grammy voters to decide what country is? But at the same time, I'm like, is Starcross country? I mean, I don't know. I think in a way, I think the bigger question is structural. The way the Grammys classifies this shit is dated and stupid at this point. Like trying to break this stuff into genres is getting more difficult, in my opinion. For more sizzling hot takes on the Grammys, uh, Louis does have an upcoming episode that is going to be a Grammys prediction episode. So tune in for that. I'm looking forward to that one. That's going to be fun. Nothing as evergreen as dragging the Grammys. (laughs) All right. Brian Hickey writes in all caps, will crash be good? And Brian is referring to Charlie XCX's album Crash, which will be released 24 hours after this episode goes live. So you may have Mm. already heard this. Louis, what is your call? Having not heard Crash, will it be good? Hold on. Let me download from the great gay ether in which Charlie XCX is the governing force. Um, Yes. Like, I like all the singles so far. I mean, good ones. Banger. New Shapes, banger. Beg for You, banger. Baby, banger. I don't know. I like all the songs so far, so my guess is yes. And also, like, Charlie tends to make good music, so yes. Charlie (laughs) is a great pop writer, and there is every reason to assume there will be great pop songs. I agree. And also, we've heard half the album already, (laughs) so, like, I think we can already make at least some determination. Uh, I've got a fun one from a listener named Rhiannon. And this is another one whose Instagram I was... Her obs- name is Rihanna? Her, her name is Rihanna. 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 Oh, Rihanna. Like, the, like the Fleetwood Mac song. Like the Fleetwood Mac song. And this is another yeah. excellent Instagram person who is trolling former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, by sitting on the at Rick Perry Instagram hand. <laughs> Uh, coming from Rick Perry, definitely the governor of Texas, Rhiannon sure. asks suggestions for a springtime playlist. Oh, God. There- I don't know if I'm that good at this. Russ, what do you think are good suggestions for a springtime playlist? Uh, what about a couple of songs that you have just been listening to lately? Maybe a couple songs from the past couple I- of weeks that are really hyping you up? I love, uh, since listening to the Diana Ross episode where we talked about Niall Rogers, I am absolutely obsessed with the Sister Sledge song that he wrote and produced called Thinking of You. I mean, I do think that's a good spring record. Like, I, I, it's like a kind of mid-tempo disco song that just has, like, the most intoxicating melody, and the playing is just fantastic, and I just, like, absolutely think that that is, like, the pinnacle of Niall Rogers' discography and maybe of, like, disco as a genre for me. I'm thinking of you and the things you do to me. So that's one song that I like listen to on repeat. Frankly, like going back to the previous question, I love Charlie's song, Baby. I know people are very like, I feel like there's been a mixed reaction to that one, but I love her sort of like making a Vanity Six Prince reference in a song. And I think if there's one overarching trope of the Charlie record, it seems like she's doing big 80s vibes. Like aside from Beg For You, which I guess is referencing a 90s song, you know, you've got kind of like the mechanized funk of Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis on New Shapes. You've got kind of like the sweet dreams are made of this vibe of good ones. And now you've got this kind of like Prince Vanity Six vibe on Baby. So I really like Baby. Baby, I'm a Baby, I'm a 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 I'm a
The best thing about Charlie is that she's a student of the genre. And oh, for sure. You really, you really hear that. I would say, uh, do you know Tom Aspall? No. Uh, is that a man? Are you asking me to put a man on here? Uh, <laughs> uh, actually, two of my faves right now are songs from men. Tom Aspel's Let Them, It's All Love is a fantastic 2022 pop song. And I am kind of embarrassed to say it, but Light Switch by Charlie Booth. Yeah, Light Switch. Light Switch. Bitch, Charlie. You, pff, like, I love Charlie Booth. It's like the only sh- contemporary straight male pop star that I, that I legitimately stand. <laughs> you turn me on like a light switch when you're moving your body around and around. Now I don't want to fight this. You know how to just make me want you. Turn me on like a light switch when you're moving your body around and around. I mean, another one I might throw on here, obviously, are like some of these slut pop songs. Oh, and I really like the song Less Than Zero from the Weeknd's Dawn FM album. That's yes. definitely one I play quite a lot. I really do like that album. As someone who's like sometimes been on the fence about the weekend, I really did enjoy this last weekend record. So All right, is that well, good? That is great. And for a much more organized and thought through process when I'm not just putting Louie on the spot, watch about mid-year. We have a plan to bring a friend of the pod in to talk about the year in pop so far. And in that, Louie will be giving loads and loads of recommendations about stuff that has been recently released. Wow, Russ, the way you get the promo in, <laughs> it's incredible. All I, right. I, I stand you. <laughs> I stand you too, Louie. Are you ready Thanks. for your last question? It is the oh, most yes. ridiculous in the bunch. And <laughs> thank you so much to kpow.mp3 for sending it. Oh, God. The question is, Talk about Ava Max for at least two minutes, please. Are okay, you, you ready? I'm timer. gonna I'm gonna set a timer and mm-hmm. three, two, one. Ava Max. So Ava Max, I can't like say is like somebody that I have that much to say about in general. But considering that I'm a great talker, I feel like I could meet this assignment. So Ava Max, what do I think about? I think about obviously the asymmetrical haircut that she has since gotten rid of. I mean. That is the most memorable thing about you, and you're going to just deny us that one thing? Like, I literally could not tell you what this woman looks like, aside from the fact that she has half of her hair cut into a bob, and the other half of her hair is at, like, a mid-length. That's that's the only thing I know about her. You know, Sweet But a Psycho, never been my particular favorite song. I know that people really stan her album, and I definitely have listened to a few of those records, like, in passing, and, like, liked them in the moment, but then, like, completely forgot about them she really reminds me in a sense of like like she's kind of carrying the torch for like the edm pop girlies like there's people out there like her and kim petras that are like out there trying to like do the kind of pop stardom that like we all used to love in like 2009 so i guess i appreciate her for carrying forth that mantle as i mentioned i feel like so many of my friends keep like will play me Ava Max songs and be like, you'd really like this. Like this seems up your alley and they'll like play me a song and I'll be like, yeah, like this seems good. And then I like literally can like not name one of them and like totally forget all of them. So I guess I'm happy to see that like she's found her little niche army of fans and you know, every pop girly deserves to have some gays who like rep for them. And she has clearly achieved that. And I am happy for her. Like I want her to be happy. I want her to be successful. I look forward to caring about her maybe more in the future if she does something that seems worthwhile. And Ten seconds. I, and I hope that she once again finds a new hairdo that I can remember uh, about because right now I just can't even picture what her face looks like. <laughs> you did it! 
That was two minutes about Ava Max. Thank you for tuning in to Bob Pantheon. (laughs) I feel insane from that. Well, Russ, (laughs) we did it, didn't we? Uh, We did. Thank you so much to all of the listeners who sent in insightful, hilarious, complicated, and nuanced questions. Again, follow us on social media, Pop Pantheon Pod. We will be doing more of these mailbag episodes. People seem to really love them, and I love to hear Louie tackle some things that don't fit into natural episodes about our main artists. So thank you so much for everyone who sent in a question if we didn't answer your question uh know that we have saved it for a future pop pantheon mailbag episode yes thank you russ for doing this with me oh my god i had so much fun it was fun all right guys we'll see you again next week bye bye (laughs) i feel insane from talking about eva max for two minutes (laughs) (laughs) 